The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Good morning, everybody. Excuse me, good afternoon. It's already afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States. Welcome to our Sunday Space Show program, and I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in to what I'm sure will be a very interesting 90-minute program. But listeners do note that we have a hard break at 90 minutes, so if you want to call uh, and talk to our guest, Dr. Peter Haig, or you want to send an email, you need to get it in before we end, because um, if you get it in and and we're on the way out. You're not going to get your question or your or your comment responded to. So please watch the the clock and don't be an eleventh hour uh, communicator. Okay, we'll do it that way. And a um, couple of other things I just uh, would like to uh, call to your attention. We do have a full week of space show programming coming up, uh, but uh, after that we're going to miss a few days because I will be out of pocket on the 6th, Sunday the 11th, and Tuesday the 13th. I will be putting Golden Oldies up that I recommend for you on the website for each of those days, and hopefully you will um, find them of interest. And on Tuesday, just to give you a quick heads up, Dr. Carlos Decchia, D-E-C-C-I-A, is with us. He's going to talk about this new multi-billion dollar uh, space center that is being built uh, in Mountain View near NASA Ames in conjunction with UC Berkeley, Cal as, as they like to call it. And also we're going to talk about Korea's space programs, north and south, to the degree that Carlos uh, is able to and wishes to talk about that. Hotel Mars has Dr. Grinspoon on on interstellar issues. Jim Lewis from Communication Concepts, our friend in uh, the Cape Canaveral area of Florida, is with us on Vulcan Celestis and a couple of other great topics. And then on Sunday, we have two guests from Aerospace on about a recent Oklahoma State University seminar on human spaceflight and habitats uh, for the commercial sector. So we're going to hear from... Um, uh, our two guests, and all of this is already up on the website, so you can follow along and know who's on. And if you want to post comments on their blog pages, if you know something that I haven't put down, please feel free to do that. Uh, don't forget, also, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we are listener-supported, meaning those of you who listen to us support us, and we absolutely need that support, and we thank you for it. The easiest way to support us is with PayPal. 
and you'll see a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage. And then if you are a U.S. donor using a United States bank, you can use Zelle, and Zelle's has a special email address, david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And for those of you that mail checks to us in Las Vegas, Nevada, please make the check payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. Don't make it out to the space show or anything else because Chase Bank is not accepting it under what they claim are new audit rules. So please make checks out to One Giant Leap Foundation and mail it to our Las Vegas address, which is also on that PayPal button. Don't forget we have sponsors and uh, some advertisers. And if you would like more information about our sponsorship program with banner ads and PR messages, uh, email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, sponsorship is $500 per year, and uh, that's on a calendar year basis. And um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, real quickly, our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corporation, Dr. Ben Arroyo with his lunar books, the Space Foundation, and John Jossie with his great blog, which he often co-posts and adds to the Space Show blog, Space Settlement Progress, excuse me, uh, which really is on the cutting edge tech for humans to uh, set up and get space settlements going uh, someday throughout the whole solar system and beyond. At least that is the long-term goal, and I do mean long-term. Uh, but he has a great blog, and you ought to pay attention to it. In fact, John is the one who called my attention to our guest today, Dr. Peter Hay, uh, several years ago. And uh, I've been following him on Substack ever since because uh, he has um, uh, a blog uh, that is called Planetocracy, uh, also a website, planetocracy.org. And he really does post some very thought-provoking and original and high-quality ideas, and we're going to talk about some of those today. He has his Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Leicester. Hopefully I got that right this time. Uh, he studied dark matter and galaxy dynamics. Uh, he's done research at the Institute of Computational Cosmology at the University of Durham and the Cavendish Lab at Cambridge. And he works in scientific software as an engineer. Uh, that's also at Cambridge. And he is an industry uh, analyst, an independent space industry analyst. And, and therefore, again, he publishes at planetocracy.org. Um, Peter, welcome back to the Space Show. It's good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm good, thank you, David. Uh, listeners, we don't have the best of telephone lines, so if for some reason you're not understanding, don't hesitate to drop us an email at drspace@thespaceshow.com and ask for a clarification or a repeat. And um, uh, other than that, uh, we're doing the best we can and. I, I can't always, you know, circumvent uh, phone line problems there. They are the space show's biggest uh, adversary, much bigger than China and Russia, because I have to deal with the 
phone lines daily. I don't have to deal with China daily. Uh, Peter, again, welcome back. Happy New Year to you. And uh, I understand you're petitioning your government, the UK government, to uh, have Starship services over there. Is that correct? That's right. Um, you know, um, as you may, as you probably know, the UK doesn't um, have any indigenous um, launch capability. Um, one of the largest economies in the world, but uh, doesn't. I think the only one large is Germany. Um, so, like France and Italy make their own rockets, so we don't. Um, we attempted recently to start launches from the UK um, by building a spaceport in Cornwall uh, and getting Virgin Orbit to come and launch their rockets from there. And unfortunately, the first launch of that failed and the company itself um, failed shortly afterwards. So my thinking was that even though this didn't work um, because um, the launch failed and the company wasn't solvent, the principle is probably still sound. So why not, instead of just getting a small sat launcher to come here, why not just try and get the best new launch system that's coming online to launch from this country? So that was the nature of the petition. I, I said the government, I, I, I couldn't mention SpaceX by name, the petition was initially rejected for that reason because you can't, um, on the government's petition website, you can't start a petition that promotes a specific company. So I, I rewrote the petition to say um, we should be getting uh, 100 ton or greater to low Earth orbit class vehicles here, which is effectively the same thing. Uh, so the petition was asking them to build a super heavy lift um, spaceport and I sort of left it vague as that they should provide some funding for the launches. I, I didn't have much space to write, so I kind of left it sort of fairly open-ended and just kind of stuck to the main point that we should have a launch capability in this country and it should be um, heavy lift rather than small satellite. Um, do you know if SpaceX wants to bring Starship to the UK or any other country. Have you heard well, anything from them about that side of the of the idea? Well, they've always hinted at it, and in the most recent SpaceX All Hands, which actually occurred after I started this petition, uh, Elon Musk said they will be launching from all over the world. Um, explicitly said that. Um, it seems unlikely that the the a launch rate sort of required for this vehicle to like truly make it into an interplanetary species could be maintained from just Boca Chica and Kennedy Space Center. So I, believe, I think that this is definitely their long-term plans, and if a government such as ours came along and was willing to put in money to it, then it might sort of, they, they might, they'd be likely, I think, to choose us as their first one U.S. site. Did, did your government respond to your petition yet? Uh, it's running, the petition runs for six months. Uh, so it'll be in, sorry, in the early January. So it'll be uh, at the end of June, uh, the government will respond uh, based on how many signatures I get at that point. 
if I get 10,000, um, they'll respond um, in, in writing. And the response will almost be certainly, we're not doing this because it generally is for these. If I get 100,000 signatures, then they, they have to discuss the petition in Parliament, which is the, the ideal goal. I, I don't expect them to sort of see the petition and go, oh, that's a great idea. We'll just implement it as policy. What I expect them to do is if they, if they have to talk about it in Parliament, they might at the very least read up on it. And it's just to sort of raise awareness of this kind of possibility and the general accelerating state of space launch in the space industry in the minds of um, the UK Parliament. Can anyone sign the position? Can petition? Can people from the United States sign it, or do they, they have to be in the UK? You have to be in the UK, but I don't think you have to be a UK citizen. Um, what they need from you is your address, uh, because it the petition sort of is organised by parliamentary constituency, so you need to give it your address so it knows who your MP is, who you'll be voting for. So the MPs can see how much interest for this petition there is in their particular constituency, which will be useful for you know, getting their attention. Um, well, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how many people sign it. Can you tell how many people have signed it or know about it yet? Um, I haven't checked. It's about 500 so far. Um I'm hoping to accelerate things a bit more. I've got a few more um, attempts at publicizing it. I mean, I would like to ask uh, any of your listeners, I mean, I assume they're mostly in the United States, but if any of you know anybody who is in the UK at the moment, it doesn't matter if they're a citizen or resident, it's just if they're, as long as they are living at an address in the UK, if you could get in touch with them, tell them about this petition, um, which you can get to through my blog. And if you just sort of contact one person, they wouldn't listen to this, but it's contact one person, I could get a significant number of signatures and help build some momentum. When did you start the petition? Uh, the beginning of January. So it's been going for a month. Just under, yeah. Okay, well, uh, listeners, if you know someone to... Uh, help out, go for it. it. It sounds like a good idea. And I would concur, if Musk really does intend to seriously go for those goals he has about how many people he wants to transfer to, the, to Mars and some of his uh, ambitious plans, he's going to need more launch sites than Boca and, and the Cape, that's for sure. So um, it, whether he goes to the UK or who knows where, but he, he's definitely going to need to do more launch sites uh, to make all that come to pass. Uh, but I guess first he obviously wants to get it rolling. So uh, mm-hmm. yes, I, mean, I wouldn't expect it to be prioritised over uh, the current U.S. sites. He's still got to build uh, a second tower at Boca Chica, which I think they've just started, and, and they've got to build one at Kennedy Space Center. So I, I don't imagine it would be happening like in a year or two. But it's the kind of thing where you'd have to sort of generate interest and 
get the idea of it out there. Um, and then hopefully in a few years down the road, something that might happen. Um, let's go to some of your articles that you post, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one that caught my attention and actually caused me to want to invite you back to the show um, was a really interesting one. Um, and um, you, I think you titled it, there's no business case for civilization. Uh, That's right. And rather than me share the, with the listeners my thoughts and, and why that uh, attracted me and wanted me to, to come back at you for the show, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean no case for civilization? Well, there is a case for civilization. There's no business case. Um, and this really sort of came from a commentary on British politics, so I'd be interested to hear sort of how well or not it translates to American politics. Because in this country, we have uh, leaders who are very sort of managerial. And they, they will talk about things like a business case for some government policy or program. They will spend a lot of time using the kind of the lingo of business um, because they think it gives them sort of credibility and makes them sound like very serious people. And uh, for instance, uh, this is not mentioned in the article, but our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak um, not long ago did a a sort of a sit-down interview with Elon Musk and he was sort of gushing and he was was very much in his element sort of pretending to be a tech podcaster instead of the Prime Minister of the UK. And um, he, he probably won't be Prime Minister of the UK for very much longer, incidentally. Uh, we have an election coming up probably about the same time as yours. But the article was about sort of how this attitude of just pretending government is a business is sort of damaging to what governments are actually supposed to do. And the example I used was a high-speed rail project we have here in the UK, which has been sort of gutted and scaled back on the basis that there's no business case, which, to me, if you are a fund manager or something and you're investing in a project, you just say there's no business case is a very good reason you just stop investing in it. But this doesn't necessarily make sense for a government because a government shouldn't be and realistically isn't running on to sort of optimizing return on investment because the things that governments do tend to have very poorly um, quantified returns. For instance, my government and yours have sent large amounts of weapons to Ukraine to help defend themselves. We're not doing this because we expect to make a profit on it. Uh, on selling weapons to them. They were just giving them weapons for free. Well, it's definitely most people in these countries agree it's something we should do. And so that's the essence of it, is that this, this sort of business mindset or kind of pseudo-business mindset, they're not, is damaging to the way governments run and the implication for sort of big space projects is that... Um, 
that they were going to get public funding without governments who can think beyond this sort of idea of pretending to be businessmen. But, you know, um, for government programs, they don't typically evaluate the way a commercial business would. And, and they don't usually their, – their case for doing this or that policy – is is not the same as um, what a board of directors might want for a profit-oriented corporation or even a, a a group of advisors for a small sole proprietorship, for example, or one of these entrepreneurial startups. So I, I guess I would ask you: Is it fair game to um, to compare all of this uh, to to running a government? So I think there should be some efficiencies and some methodologies to account for both effectiveness and efficiency. But mm. I'm not sure for a public program, um, we'll take take your example of giving weapons to uh, and sponsoring and supporting the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's not going to be a return on investment in a traditional yeah. way to countries supporting that, but there should be a return on the intrinsic values of what makes the West important and freedom and issues like that. And so are the expenditures we're incurring to support Ukraine, supporting the the goals of the UK, the goals of the United States, the goals of Western Europe, of freedom, of, of what the West stands for. But I don't think that's the same as a commercial company. So is business case the the correct terminology? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, and this is I'm kind of agreeing with what you've just said there that um, governments shouldn't try to run like this. But I, I'm saying that they often do. I think it's it's substantially worse in here in the UK than perhaps it is in the US. But I mean, I know, for instance, on something I do know about in the US, there's. Um, how NASA makes the case for itself as a taxpayer-funded program, and they often talk about sort of uh, how many dollars, I think it's like $7 into the U.S. economy for every, dollar, for every dollar spent at NASA. So they're not sort of saying, I mean, they're not going back to like JFK saying we choose to go to the moon and just sort of saying it as a, as a raw assertion of values that we need to do this thing. They're saying, well, if you give us money, it'll get into the economy. If you give us money for uh, the space launch system, it'll create jobs here and there and, and everywhere. So it's all been done as sort of, how do I say, mercenary? And I don't, um, I don't think NASA's bad for doing this. I think that they are doing what they have to do in order to to maintain themselves in the political environment. But this kind of return on investment mindset, sort of leaking into government, is what I wrote the article criticizing because it's reached a very sort of high level of like almost every decision in the UK um, comes down to this metric. Um, so, what is the metric of trying to then evaluate the the 
the I guess the case for the equivalent of a business case for commerce. What's the metric to do that for society, uh, for civilization in our our countries contributing to that? I guess that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting from what you're talking about. And then, of course, if we focus in on space, how is that contributing uh, to um, the, the goals for our various nations or the or the Western nations uh, or any specific individual nation? So we, well, we need a metric if it's not going to be a business plan or a return on investment. Yes, um, but the the way you choose the metric always has to have some kind of subjective value in it. Um, uh, for instance, going back to the Apollo program, uh, the metric was we're going to send a man to the moon and return him safely. And this is sort of a binary metric. There's either zero, you haven't done it, or one, you have done it. Um, it was very clearly defined that they didn't need um, like Congress to appoint a committee to investigate if it had actually happened. It was just announced on the TV, and it, it definitely happened, despite some people still claiming that it didn't. So that was a metric, but... Why was it a significant metric? That was a value judgment. That this was America saying that this is what a, a free society can do, and uh, whatever you think, if you think sort of like Soviet planned economies really cool and making these um, massive technical leaps, well, a liberal democracy can do better. Well, this is this comes down to values. It's subjective values. It doesn't fit on a spreadsheet, even though from that subjective value, you can then derive metrics, which you can sort of economically rationalize against. And you can sort of say, does this serve the metric that we're using? Um, So one of our listeners, uh, John, who is probably listening to this show, um, in his commentary on this, uh, he, he said, if, again, using your terminology, if there's no business case for civilization, um, then how do you um, how do you tax people uh, using public funds to colonize the solar system? I mean, clearly, not everybody's interested in doing that, right? Um, so, but but if there's no business case, or I guess no way to value that public investment, then um, can you can you use public funds for something like space colonization or going to the moon or going to Mars, uh, or does it all have to be private sector? And I guess you could say that about almost any other public expenditure that might be controversial. Um, yes, and the, the issue is that The the stuff that can be very easily rationalized, I think, will get done by the private sector. Uh, A lot of the criticism of how sort of bloated and inefficient and slow government is, some part of it comes from the problems that government actually tries to tackle. And often it's problems that 
the private sector's looked at for this is too hard, we can't make it work and get a return investment, so we're going to walk away from the problem and find something else. Well, government either, because the, the problem has some intrinsic value that doesn't sort of show up on a balance sheet, um, or uh, because it has to be done, um, such as like national defence, then they they go and try and solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And so the justification for taking money from the taxpayers, you've got to stand up and tell people you have to make the case verbally, I guess. You, uh, the, the issue I, I was sort of raising in the, in the article was in part this idea that this sort of uh, sort of stake rationality was being used by politicians in my country and probably elsewhere to sort of hide away from actually sort of asserting that this thing is valuable and we're going to do it because it's valuable in itself. So the, the justification, uh, using John's commentary for um, public funding of, uh, of, say, colonization or something like that throughout the, the solar system, um, is the case you make for its value to civilization, society, humanity, however you want to describe it. And then the, the better you make a compelling case, I guess, in theory, the, the more people will be supportive of, the, of, of a government or of uh, – a, a group of government, governments, like the European Union, for example, spending money on that on that particular issue, but but without that support from uh, a really good case for it, uh, then you don't get funded by the government and would have to look toward the private sector. Is that sort of your bottom line? Yes, I mean, obviously. Um the advantage of the private sector is you have to convince far fewer people, sometimes just one person, um, but there's far less money available. The thing with the public sector is it's, there's a huge amount of money on the table, which of course means that when you go up and make your case, everybody else who's got something that's quite valid to spend that money on is going to make their own case and possibly try and take your case down. And that's just politics, right? That's... And I think that everyone sort of rolls their eyes at politics, but actually doing politics and making these big arguments about what is valuable in itself is preferable than pretending that you can just rationalize all this by applying sort of crude economic metrics to it. Uh, You have a caller, so let's take your phone call. Uh, Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to our program with Dr. Haig in the UK. Who are you and where are you, please? Uh, hi, David and Peter. This is John in Fremont, California. Speak of the devil. Hello. <laughs> Speak of the nice. Uh, hi, Peter. The nice devil, not not not. How are you doing? Not the devil, the bad devil. How are you? Uh, good to have you back uh, on the show too. Do, doing well, and and uh, I really uh, appreciate um, Peter's blog and and uh, all he's been doing to uh, further space settlement. 
Um, I, and now, now is the time to, um, uh, give us some more information about this, uh, discussion you're having with Tony Blair. Um, I, I see on X <laughs> that, um, yes, that you, was, you, that was a joke, unfortunately. Oh, that was a joke? <laughs> yes, sorry. Uh, okay. I translate. Uh, they, 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 someone wrote an article saying Blair and Haig discussing the future of the UK. They're referring to Tony Blair and a guy called William Hague, who used to be the leader of the Conservative Party. Um, he just happened to share my surname, so I just made a joke that I was in some big conference with Tony Blair. I apologize for any confusion. That's, that's hilarious. I, I, uh, I, I got totally uh, sucked into this. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs> if anybody wants to, to know, it, it says... Um, uh, Peter's been working with Tony Blair, and we've agreed to a framework to put the U.K. on a track to establish permanent off-world colonies by 2050. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's see what this is. <laughs> Sorry for disappointing you. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, you've... Uh, Done a, a good a, a good case for you know explaining uh, how we would get public funding um, for um, you know some of these um, uh, civilization type projects that um, have have a huge impact. Um, uh, central projects, I think, is is what. Uh, some people have called it, uh, I forget the philosopher's name, um, Nick something, uh, calls it a central project. Um, you know, um, do we, do we really even need that if we've got, uh, someone like Musk or Bezos that, that's gonna do it on their own? Um, they might do it on their own. I hope they do. Um, but it's going to be very expensive. And also, um, not to be too parochial, but both of those men are Americans, and that, I mean, I, I guess people from the UK who wanted to get involved could go for America, and that is already, there's quite a lot of leakage of talent, um, and if the only start point of space colonization is the US, that'll be good for the US attracting immigrants, but it might not be necessarily good from countries like mine that would start hemorrhaging sort of very ambitious, talented graduates uh, to another country. So from my perspective, it would be good for the UK to actually get a hand in this um, because both on sort of the, the far project of space colonization and the near project of the Artemis project, the Artemis program and the Artemis Accords, what countries that are involved are going to get out of it in proportion to how they put into it. So, a simple example, on the Artemis II, there's a Canadian astronaut, and this is in this very simple terms because Canada supplies robot arms to, to NASA. They're going to have the Canada Arm 3 on the gateway, so through that contribution, they get a seat. Um, and so, on that basis... The UK should be contributing to Artemis and further on we should be contributing to space colonization. And at present, we don't have 
any sort of big figures in the private sector willing to sort of throw hundreds of billions of their own money at the, pro- at the project. So for us, at our sort of earliest state of development uh, in space, we will certainly need public funds just to just apply as table stakes. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, switching gears here, um, uh, one of the topics that you had mentioned you wanted to talk about is potential competition with China in space. Mm. And I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, from the from, from the point of view of what I was, the point I was making about um, expressing these things through core values, it would be very easy to sort of say, well, look, there's China's society that doesn't have free elections, it doesn't have uh, a liberal society, they're not the model we want for the future, so we need to outcompete them. That might be sort of a very easy way to get in, but we've got to be sort of honest about what the nature of the competition is at the moment. And I've I've been skeptical for a while of the existence of a U.S.-China space race as some, on the Chinese side, at least. I think there's a lot of people in the U.S. very keen to have another space race. Um, but I, I didn't see as much sort of impetus on the Chinese side. I'm actually revising that opinion somewhat because there, are, there seem to be indications the Chinese program is speeding up in terms of the timescale, for instance, of getting their, their Long March 10 booster up and running. So this is going to be um, roughly Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy equivalent. There'll be a Long March 10A single stick for low-Earth orbit missions and a Long March 10B triple stick for um, beyond-Earth orbit missions. I think the former is going to be flying in a year or two. So this is going to set them up to do uh, a lunar landing by the end of the decade, for sure, which was sooner than I thought. And so they are expanding their space plans, but I'm not sure they are racing in the sense that most other people are thinking. I don't think they're that fussed about who next lands on the moon because they can't really claim it as a first if they do. Uh, What they do want and what they have public state is they want to be the leading space power um, uh, by the centenary of the People's Republic of China, which is in 2049. And I'm coming around to the idea that we need to sort of think of this as maybe uh, some level of civilizational challenge that, again, if, if they, if the U.S. essentially sort of flatlines at this point, just gives up and doesn't sort of push any further, and China does, then perhaps they could end up being the ones setting the rules in space, and that's probably pretty bad for the rest of us. Um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, my country essentially joined in with a U.S.-led world order. Um, and I don't see any good cause to skip over to a Chinese-led order if we have moved out into space. So 
at the, at the risk of sort of joining in with the sort of new Cold War saber rattling, yes, I think it would. I think we need to consider China a a competitor, and when you sort of think that the three societies together should be setting the rules in space, preferably to China. I, I, I don't think that there's any opportunity for cooperation with China. Do you? Um, they've refused to join the Artemis Accords. Um, they probably won't, uh, unless somebody knows something I don't. There's no, they've got their International Lunar Research Station, I think it's called, um, which they've invited Russia and uh, Venezuela and uh, it's a fairly sort of motley list of um, countries that don't like the West very much. Um, and I think some there may be some sort of neutral-ish ones. And I, I don't know, maybe Pakistan's in it? I'm not sure. But, yeah, they're, because they're forming their own coalition of lunar partners, that would seem to suggest they have no interest in joining Artemis. And the U.S. probably isn't that keen to have them, given how often... Um, policymakers and uh, even people in NASA, I think, uh, say that the China is a competitor. So no, I don't think there's going to be any cooperation. Well, unfortunately, it, it, it seems to me like we're headed for future that that resembles the expanse uh, as we move out into the solar system. And uh, that concerns me. But, uh, you know, uh, I guess we'll see. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll, I'll I get off the phone and, and let someone else call in. And thank you for coming on, Peter. Um, right. uh, thank you for calling. Thank you, John. Um, listeners, you can give us a call, 866-687-7223. If we went back to that first uh, question, that, that first subject, and we're talking about taxing and valuing for something like space colonization, what do, you, what do you think China would do about that? they just take their government money, regardless of how they worked it, and spend it on what the government wants, and the, and the people wouldn't really have any say-so or vote or, mm. or opportunity to revolt against it if they thought they were getting gypped, Right. So, Absolutely, so yeah. this is a question only for um, representative-type governments. And um, uh, so I, I, I think that probably m- maybe uh, handicaps the ability of the West to do big, big uh, multi-government civilization-like projects be- because we are responsive to the people, at least to some degree, whereas a totalitarian yeah. regime will just do whatever they want. I mean, there is a sort of a note of hope on that from history, is that, I mean, totalitarian regimes, they can get things done quickly, um, and they can appear superficially strong, but um, they tend to lose in the long term. If you look at the Second World War, when Japan attacked the United States, um, like sunk a bunch of ships at Pearl Harbor, I mean, they they sort of uh, quote about them waking up a sleeping giant. They thought the United States was weak. So did the Germans. They thought that um, it was this sort of like weak, liberal, 
sort of hedonistic society that they were just they had no focus, they had no will to fight. And very much the same sort of things that the Russians think about the US today. And when they attack the US, Japan, um, this sort of massive consumer economy then got switched over to war production and just essentially massively outproduced them in ships. Um, I think at one point they were producing a ship a day. So this is what sort of a, the first half of the war or the conflict tends to go well for the unfree society, but then they tend to later regret it when the free society has mobilized. You have another phone call. Um, good afternoon, okay. caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you and where are you, please? Uh, Marshall and Little Renfro. Okay. And uh, one of the comments you made earlier, you talked about the government's uh, doing non-productive things, and I immediately thought of the American prohibition, and the government spent lots and lots of money to keep people from getting alcohol, and it totally failed. And, uh, yeah, governments do kind of silly things from time to time. Um, the other item that's much more important is uh, when I look at Starship and Elon Musk's comments, I start thinking about mm, 10, 12 spaceports around the Earth, and it's kind of like, uh, what's the value of Heathrow Airport uh, there in, I think it's in London, uh, yeah. you know, huge economic value, and being first in Europe to have a major spaceport, I think would uh, have a huge positive argument. Got quite yes, a bit I think of, so, too. Yeah, but your population density around Heathrow is pretty significant, isn't it? Well, yes. Um, one of the uh, things I was considering when I was writing this petition was, um, at the moment, the, the two spaceports we have, um, was, is, is, one's in northern Scotland, one's in, uh, in Cornwall, which is a very southwest. So put them sort of near the sea, very far from populations, which is understandable. But I, I was looking at, could we have one in the North Sea, an offshore one? Weather-wise, it might be, it can get pretty, it can get quite windy out there. But uh, as I understand it, Starship will be a little less fickle with the weather than um, Falcon 9 is, um, because it's a lot sort of squatter and sturdier. Uh, it not, may not so, be so fickle that it can launch in the North Sea. I mean, that mm. you know that's that's pretty severe weather. And and when they have those drilling platforms in the North Sea, they are unbelievably anchored to the bottom of the mm. North Sea to survive it. So it's fairly shallow. So I know, but I, I I'm just saying that that the, it's big waves, big winds, and so uh, mm. I don't I don't know that. Even the Russian rockets could launch in the North Sea. <laughs> well, there's still Cornwall we can launch south, and that's still relative. If, this would come back to the high-speed train um, issue. We'd need to have some very quick land transport to get to a spaceport, even if it was sort of in the North Sea. Right. I mean, especially if it's, in, if it's in northern Scotland, it would be a it would take hours even on the fastest possible train. Um, yeah, the. The, the sort of, in terms of the comparison with Heathrow, 
if if this idea of point-to-point transportation works out, then one one sort of application from the point of view of the UK will be um, fast transport to Australia and New Zealand. Because so the, the government, in the aftermath of leaving the EU, has tried to pr- promote the Kanzuk group as sort of an alternative zone, which is Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand. And Canada is not too far away on a plane, but it would take like 20 hours to get to Australia. So, I don't know, if point-to-point rockets work out and if they're affordable to, like, normal mere mortals, then being able to, even if it took you that uh, quite a while to get to the spaceport, being able to do the hop in, like, 40 minutes or whatever, that would potentially have some applications. But I'm not, I'm not sort of proposing it for that reason, because I think that's quite far off. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an issue that uh, uh, rights of eminent domain and uh, licensing. I presume that you have uh, some version of the Federal Aviation uh, Authority to uh, deal with. Um, presumably, yes, we do. I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but yes. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the right of eminent domain so the government can, you know, uh, take land and put it into a high, you know, a high service uh, type issue like airports and, in this case, spaceports, uh, I presume there's uh, laws to help do that. Um, planning in the UK, uh, it's a bit of a thorny issue. Um they they kind of lent quite hard into um, a bit too much local democracy, and we have a lot of NIMBYs just blocking everything. But there is legislation in principle to kind of skirt around that. Um, I believe they may have used it to come to um, push through the nuclear power station that we're currently building. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but we can. The fact that we've actually started construction on a nuclear power station, which always sort of attracts um, nutty anti-nuclear campaigners like flies. Um, the, the, the UK government can, if it wants to, actually build something contentious. If it really wants to. Well, that's all the fun I'm allowed for today. Until next time. Marshall, who's, Thank you. Who's, who's allowing you only that much fun? <laughs> well, uh, well, start with the wife. Uh, <laughs> okay, I just, just wanted to make to find out if there was an external permission that you were getting on on calling the space show and what you're doing. So, uh, no, no, no. It's it's uh, this is one of my hobbies, and uh, we'll discuss it on the thirteenth. I think. Uh, oh, do I have you down for the thirteenth, Marshall? I'm not sure. Um, no. Well, send me an email. I, I got to send you an email. I had to, to, to take the 13th off the schedule. Uh, I thought I did. I'll send you an email after the show, okay? Okay. okay. Uh, until next time. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Bye. Listeners, you are able to uh, call and talk to Peter if you would like. Our phone number is one eight six six. 
you know, I should know it by heart by now. Uh, 687-7223. It's actually 1-866-68-SPACE. But I always hate it when you get a phone number in numbers and in, in, in letters and then you still have to find the numbers. But um, feel free to give us a call. Uh, Peter, um, what kind of reaction did your did you get on your blog? And can you tell if the reaction comes from the UK or elsewhere? Is the reaction different depending on the origin of the of the person who's reacting? And is this on my one about um, the business case? Yeah, on the business. I'm just yes. using that as an example. Yeah. Um. I'm not sure I've got different responses from different countries. Uh, I think uh, some economic uh, economists might have had some issue with it. I mean, there are some people who are sort of wedded to this idea that you have to have some rationality in government because obviously rational is good and irrational is bad and, you know, science is on our side and all this stuff. But the sort of attempt to sort of pretend that you're just making sort of a fact-based statement and not having values, you're just having sort of implicit hidden values. Um, I have in the, um, in the blog a, a quote from David Hume, which describes this. This is going like the 18th century when he framed his is-ought problem. And he said, We speak not strictly and philosophically when we talk of the combat of passion and of reason, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. End quote. So, so a lot of people kind of sort of think they've cracked this problem, this is all problem, that they can just look at the universe analyze it scientifically, and get values from that. And I got some pushback from people who seem to be sort of in that position and saying, no, actually, you can you can do things rationally. Um, but I still maintain, like David Hume did uh, 300 years ago, it's um, 200 years ago, that uh, you can't. You have to have some injection of... Uh, Subjective value essentially. You can gather together people debate and agree with it, but you have to say that something is good in itself just because, and then you can build your rationality below that. Um, you have another caller. Uh, mm-hmm. Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the program today. Who are you and where are you, please? Yes, hi, this is Bill Calling from Raleigh. Hey, Bill, how are you doing? Doing great, and uh, good to talk to you and to you, Peter. Um, I wanted to, uh, when you were talking about, you know, the the ways that governments find value and and justify things, I couldn't help but think about um, the U.K.'s uh, commitment to space-based solar power, which seems, um, you know, uh, pretty significant. Um, Is this an area that you follow, and uh, can you comment on that? Uh, I, I believe so far they've invested about four million pounds in it. Um, so I think the commitment might be 
is more verbal than monetary at this point. Um, <laughs> I, with regard to space-based solar power, I think it might be something worth pursuing. Um, this is something where I mean, there's a lot of people trying to make a business case for it. And it, you can do, uh, or you can try to. Um, a lot of people dispute the business case. Uh, I, I think it has sort of maybe a niche one in terms of pure making money. But you could also make a sort of a value case for it, if you like, as well, in sort of saying, if we have these satellites... We could not only distribute energy to ourselves, we could um, go and build microliners in um, other countries, like poorer countries, and then just beam them power. Sort of like send uh, beam energy directly as a form of aid. Um, so that could still be done through a framework of value rather than just raw business case. Because if, if the business case for space-based solar power obviously closes, then I would expect that governments probably don't need to do it because Starship will come online, they'll have like incredibly cheap launch um, and then if you can buy down a case and this is definitely going to be able to sell this energy or make a profit, then you're not going to need the government. You just don't need the government just to let you do it and private investors will come in and Give you loads of money. Uh, yes, I, I certainly see that point. I um, I should have looked up the numbers before I called in. I was thinking that the commitment uh, was higher than four million, um, uh, and 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 I believe that uh, you know beyond beyond the current time frame, I believe that it is to ensure that uh, uh, you know that they that the research uh, money and uh, Upfront costs are at least partially offset to the point that that can become, uh, you know, an economically competitively viable solution. So, um, it, you know, in general, I agree. I mean, it, it, long term, it is a, uh, it is certainly uh, something that would be able to operate without government, without government funding. Um, but I, you know, my my belief was that the UK was rather. Uh, Ahead of the rest of the world in many ways, in 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 saying that they see space-based solar power as a um, a, a viable solution and and one that deserves some upfront funding. I think that our government is generally quite good at generating a lot of headlines for not much investment. Um, for instance, they made I think a £50 million investment into Reaction Engines, which is a company who's um, trying to develop an air-breathing rocket engine. Uh, this was the whole Skylon space plane thing. Now, so £50 million is not enough to develop this vehicle. I don't think it will be even enough to develop the engine, and they've gone to other backers. But this was presented by... Um, the UK government is the UK just sort of leaping ahead in space. And uh, actually, I'll tell you a personal story. When um, Boris Johnson became Prime Minister uh, at the beginning of, or the end of 2019, 
um, his first speech in Parliament, he he had a section where he really boosted the space industry of the UK and saying, we're going to move forward with this, because he was, this was before COVID turned up, and he was sort of, he was sort of promising that he was going to like make Britain great again, if you like, and he was really in a sort of saw ahead in all these industries, and he mentioned space. So I wrote a letter to the Prime Minister, sort of giving my sort of, I, I kind of wanted to sort of put some ideas in the government thoughts, uh, into their think, thought process. So I wrote a letter to the Prime Minister. It was sort of immediately bounced to um, another government department because they said, well, this is about space. So we'll give it. Even though I was talking about a speech that the Prime Minister made, they said, oh, this is space agency, so it goes to the appropriate minister. And then weeks later, I got a boilerplate response to them, which included, because I'd sort of led with, the thing you have to pay attention to is how much cheaper all these SpaceX rockets are, they responded by saying, oh, well, Skyline is going to be even cheaper and that's more, more funding. So they implied that the UK government was actually funding the construction of the Skyline space plane and they would undercut SpaceX. And it's just not true. But they, they, have, the, they have the headline they generated from their sort of tiny investment and they're just sort of blowing it up to make them sound uh, as sort of keen as possible on this. So I think they have done something yeah. similar with investment in space-based solar. Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes sense. And, uh, yeah, for what it's worth, I, I, the other day I um, watched a, uh, I guess it was a live stream or a recording of a live stream of, of a parliament session where um, a representative from a U.K. organization called Space Solar was being uh, – questioned by Parliament about the value of space-based solar power. So that was, uh, and it was in, I, I think the name of the uh, website was something like Parliament Live, but uh, but it was interesting to hear the, you know, the debate between um, the members of Parliament and, um, and, and this representative of uh, a commercial in, uh, entity in the UK discussing space-based solar power. Um, I would say it didn't really differ greatly from what I would expect uh, such conversations to to be like in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, that's uh, that's it for me, David. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Sure thing. Bye. Uh, Peter, I'd like to switch your your topic, okay? Okay. Uh, because um, you did a three part series on. Uh, on uh, my friend's book, yeah. okay, yeah. Uh, and and in the early days, their book was was going to be on space tourism, and and they were uh, pursuing space tourism. So I was an early stage consultant to them on uh, mm. space tourism, and then at sometime somehow, and she told me the story on the show of how it morphed into this whole thing on. Space settlement and and all of this and uh, I know that most of the reviews have not been uh, gloriously supportive of them of Kelly and and her husband Zach uh, mm. you know and uh, although they profess till the day they're dead that they support settlement and tourism and moving humans off the earth but we're not ready now and well you know the saga so why did you feel 
that you had to do a three-part series on this book. Because honest to God, as much as Kelly is my friend, and I didn't think it was that important of a book. Uh, what did I miss? I, I mean, I, um, I can't believe you did a three-part series on it. I must have missed something because I have great respect for your analysis and, and judgment and intellect. So help me out here. Well, I so you have to understand um, these two are well, Zachary Smith is fairly popular um, as a cartoonist, and they were getting sort of quite a lot of coverage in in mainstream press, and it was fairly sort of uh, positive coverage for them. And there was no real sort of sort of critical engagement with what they were writing because. I mean, they were normally talking to people who had no background in the subject. And I had this fear that some of their criticisms would kind of leak into the mainstream. Now, this is not their fault, but um, the media tends to, the mainstream media, outside of um, sort of specialists of space-focused things, tend to equate the project of space colonization with the person of Elon Musk and sometimes Jeff Bezos. And Elon Musk, frankly, annoys a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people outright hate him. And people will form their opinions based on this. And if someone comes along with a, a series of arguments that appear to sort of like just sweep space settlement off the table completely... They're just going to latch onto it. They're not going to question it and say, oh, I've got this, this stick to fight our little tribal um, culture war um, against Elon Musk, and I'm going to grab it and use it. So I thought it would be good to get some rebuttal out in, in writing. Um, I did it in three parts because well, I, I wanted to actually sort of, um, cover the content of it. Um, in a fair amount of depth. Uh, and also because I, 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 there's not, I don't want to do too long a review. Because um, I thought, I didn't think my, my, my readers are quite capable of skipping all three parts if they want. I don't mind. Um, but I just thought it would be good to have um, a critical perspective on the book just out there. And honestly, I, I can understand why you think it was silly to write it. I mean, I'm, in many ways, I'm glad I, I got it out there because I've got a lot of other things that I've been trying to write about. Did you talk to them at all, or is this strictly you read the book and you wrote reviews on it? I read the book. and I, they, I, they did respond in writing to the first part, and they were quite sort of <laughs> snippy. They were, I think they were unhappy with what I'd written. And they said they wouldn't even respond to the second two parts, which is fine. Um, but they, 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 it's almost like they didn't read fully what I'd written in the first part. I think they were possibly upset that I'd written where do you, or thought that I'd taken the wrong turn with them. Where do you think they went wrong? Because they're, we're not really prime time ready with humans living and going into space and doing settlement and... Our progress is woefully slow on it, and I did a program with Joe Carroll on settlement and artificial gravity and related topics last week, and I, I said what's 
our progress been since you've been working in these fields and working on this for decades? And, you know, it's very little. So, um, so where did they go wrong? Well, yeah, in terms of our, like our progress on, on space settlement, it's, we need to actually sort of send people to places that can be potentially settled first. So, I mean, I'm not, there's no sort of idea that, you, that people are going to go out to Mars for the very first time on a starship, they're going to land and they're just going to set up home there. I mean, no one's thinking that, but uh, what they are essentially saying is that they want, they, they've, they want essentially a, a global government of Earth, which would then extend to the rest of the universe before going. They want to sort of get humanity into what they consider an ideal state before we leave, because they, I mean, they're not just sort of saying we're not ready because we don't know how the technology. Um, but I tend to think that uh, the technology can scale with the number of people who are out there. So for short visits, I mean, the, the technology is pretty close, I think, and you just sort of build up iteratively. Um, what they explicitly do not want to do, they make it quite clear, they, they say they say it's a wait-and-go-big approach, um, and they, they seem to be primarily motivated by this, um, by Daniel Grudny's, um idea that space colonies would turn evil and they would attack Earth or they would um, do something terrible. And I mean, this idea, I think, is wrong-headed from the start. But they've kind of picked it up and run with it and used it as a justification to say that it should be actively, uh, the settlement should be actively suppressed, even beyond sort of it being technically difficult, but they, that they would have to wait until, essentially to their satisfaction, humanity is wise enough, I guess, to go. So they, I, I got it that they really want solutions to problems before we go. So there, there's no room with them for on-the-job training, so to speak, or working problems out and evolving. Uh, they, they want things pretty well neatly tied up with a bow before you leave, and, uh, and therefore that does the least kind of amount of damage to people and and maybe to environments, if you extrapolate that out, although I'm not really quite sure how you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe you can possibly have solutions to everything, including partial gravity and human medical mm-hmm. issues and stuff. Before you go, I, I actually think much of everything we talk about here on the space show, like it or not, is going to come from on-the-job learning, providing yeah. governments don't stop people from going. Now, if, if governments do what Kelly and Zach want to do and you can't go until this is worked out, I don't even know how some of this can be worked out here on the ground, if you want to know the truth. Uh, I mean, that might be sort of part of the trap, is that if you want to pre- prevent some evil space toy coming and throwing an asteroid at you. I mean, Daniel Dooney explicitly wants space settlements stopped. 
possibly. He wants like the, um, I think he suggested just taxing it to make it completely unviable and making sure that you keep raising the tax to make sure it is. So, but if you sort of set an impossibly high barrier, uh, like, are you able to make a settlement in sort of like um, an academic discussion? And so you have to get past this before you go. This can achieve much the same effect. So this ties into an issue I'm going to ask you about, which I have not seen you cover. But on the recent mm-hmm. United launch Vulcan rocket, uh, the there were two burial companies. Uh, one is mm-hmm. Celestis that everybody knows, and the other one is a, another country company, not so many know, called Elysium. But uh, they had multiple missions on that rocket, but one was for burial on the moon, mm-hmm. and there has been burial on the moon in the past. Gene Shoemaker was put there by NASA. And um, so uh, the, the Navajo Native Americans have protested uh, because they claim the moon is their sacred ritual holy ground and you you can't just go up there and do this, that, or that about it, and including putting human remains on it. And I'm now seeing additional articles coming out opposing almost everything that is lunar commerce because the moon is, is sort of sacrosanct and holy. Have you considered writing about this? Are is this an issue that you see in the United Kingdom? Are, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Uh, yes, I know the, what you're talking about. Um, I can't see how they have any standing at all, though. I mean, this is... Uh, the Navajo technically aren't themselves signatories to the Outer Space Treaty, but presumably via the United States they are. And I'm not sure how sort of tribal sovereignty works in this respect. I'm not a lawyer. But... And you can't claim the moon. And you, under the, the Artemis Accords, these ideas of keep out zones, and this might evolve into making parts of the moon property claims. But to say this entire moon is ours because our ancient books say so, this is broadly equivalent to what uh, the People's Republic of China is doing in the South China Sea. So you've got this ancient map that says it's all ours, so it is, so we're going to start running fishing vessels. Um, so, I, I'm, I'm guessing it was done partly to do to raise publicity. I don't know. I don't know why they they made this fuss about it, but I, I can't possibly see anybody taking this seriously from a legal perspective. Well, I I know a, a little bit, which means my knowledge is dangerous uh, about Native American uh, star people legends. And mm-hmm. I know Hopi and Cherokee and Creek and Dogon and, and many of them claim heritage and legends from the star people and, and from the Pleiades and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from the moon. If you, if you look at Hopi Kachina dolls and some of the petroglyphs in the American Southwest, many, many of these drawings look like they're wearing space helmets and space suits, whether they are or not, that's an, another issue. But um, so I, I can understand they're saying this is um, part of our spiritual culture and, and our religious culture, and you can't mm-hmm. go bury there. So in the United States, they have tribal lands by treaty, 
And so for, you know, in the West, and I mean, I'll just use the Navajo as an example, they have reservation lands and tribal lands throughout Arizona and Utah and other parts of the West. And like Monument Valley, one of my favorite places on earth, is all Navajo. And you can you can be a tourist there, but all of the tourist services and everything are Navajo. You can't be a tour guide there because you're not Navajo. No way could you get permission to be buried in Monument Valley. I've actually looked into that. Um, because these are their tribal lands by treaty, and uh, in many parts of these are actually very spiritual and holy to them. But I think that's a lot different than claiming the moon or a star. Uh, and, um, yeah. and, you know, as you said, the, the treaties don't allow anyone to claim the moon. And the, mm. the U.S. Constitution doesn't allow us to favor one religion over another. Mm -hmm. So we can't favor uh, Cherokee or Navajo over Catholicism or Judaism or anything else. So I don't, I don't know their claim, and I doubt that it has any legal standing, but it looks like there's more and more people writing articles and coming out of the woodwork to protest burials on planets and the moon, and when Celestis is able to bury on Mars, you damn well sure this is going to come up on Mars, right? And so um, I'm, I'm hoping it goes nowhere, but I'm, I'm afraid that the success of the effort to maybe interfere with commerce on the moon and things like lunar or Mars or other space burials might be based on on the type of government we have in the United States at any given time, one of these mm -hmm. protests get launched because some are probably more prone to, to being friendly to it and uh, others are, are probably more prone to being uh, friendly to commerce. So I'm sort of looking at it and taking it kind of seriously, uh, even though I'm sure most everyone listening to this show just is willing to blow it off. But But I wonder if you were planning to take a look at it from your perspective, if it's at all something that you're seeing or hearing about in the United Kingdom, if if you have any ethnic cultures that claim the moon in in um, mythology in the United Kingdom. I mean, clearly, you know, Stonehenge and the pagans, uh, you know, the moon played a, a really uh, huge role in in the in the culture, you know, thousands of years ago. And in the seasons, and in in how they worshipped. So I I'm wondering if if they can make claims like that and say you can't bury people there. Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think most uh, British pagans are fairly laid back. Um, I I don't think there's much chance of these claims getting a lot of traction. But I mean, obviously, if you're sort of going back to the beginning of the idea of like. Politics has to express values, and these Navajo people making these assertions are expressing their values. Um, they're considered the moon sacred to them, um, but the problem is that so many other people consider the moon sacred to them, to them as well, and the moon is also something that is of, a, of use to all of humanity. So we do have to sort of think about this, perhaps, 
one thing I would say that um, if we develop the moon to such an extent that development is visible from Earth, that might be worth sort of working out how, how we can minimize that. Uh-huh. So, I mean, if, I mean, you won't be able to see all the stuff that's in the Artemis to the South Pole. Um, if someone to build a big city that's sort of lit up at night and you could see sort of the, the dark half of the moon, um, I think that would upset a lot of people who have a, a religious connection. And we don't want somebody to go up there and say, you know, carve a Coca-Cola advert into the Sea of Tranquility. That would um, be bad. And there are parts of the moon that even sort of secular people probably consider sacred to an extent, which would be the Apollo landing sites. And we don't want sort of a bunch of sort of astronauts, private astronauts or astronauts from um, some unfriendly country coming along, bouncing through Neil Armstrong's footprints and then chipping off a bit of the lunar module descent stage for a souvenir. So I think these things are going to be discussed in the future. I'm not sure there's a huge urgency with them um, because visible developments is quite a few years off and I don't think anyone's going to go near the Apollo sites for the foreseeable future either. Well, yeah, it's, it's got no legal standing saying the moon is sacred, but I mean, we should not sort of just sort of laugh at them and say, well, your, your, your feelings on this don't matter. We need to at least have some level of conversation. Um, there's an article, I may send it to you, and maybe I'll post it on the blog for this show, uh, in the conversation by Carol Oliver, called People Are Paying Big for Moon Burials, and it could be crossing a concerning line. But uh, the interesting thing she says toward the, toward the very end of it is we, we can't turn back the clock on private space enterprise, nor should we, but the failed mission with ashes and vanity payloads exemplifies the unexplored questions in the legal and ethical infrastructure to support commercial activity. It's worth pausing for thought on future commercialization, such as mining asteroids and even the colonization of space. So mm-hmm. she's extending it, which is what you mentioned just a few minutes ago. So I don't think you can just put it in the bag and dismiss it. I think this is, is going to be um, uh, an issue down the road, and I, I hope it, it has no legs whatsoever, but I, I can't say that. I'm going to send it to you. You may find it really interesting. Okay. I, I, I think that the problem there is the, is the author in question just grabbing onto it. As like I said, um, it, it, Elon Musk, with his particular personality, has made a space, <clears throat> the space colonization quite a contentious issue. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... I mean, in this sort of environment, people will just grab an argument as like an improvised weapon, like a bar fight, and just smack someone with it because it's there. So I think that is the the issue, not necessarily uh, the concerns about the moon being sacred in someone's religion. I think the idea is is that someone just jumped on and said, ah, here it is, we've got you, we can force you to slow this down um, through sensitivity to Native American beliefs. Well, uh, if, if you ever decide to opine on it, I'll, I'll look for your article. I, I, I think you'd give it a lot of careful thought, and, and it would be uh, be very interesting to read your thoughts on it. 
I'll, I'll, I'll keep it up with the issue. Um, um, so um, we're coming up, uh, you know, on the end of the program. Is there something we should have talked about that we haven't talked about that we left out or that you would like to add to the mix? Uh, yes. Um, a couple of times, um, something I've written about is the relationship between uh, space colonization and the environment. Because you get a lot of talk putting these two goals against each other. Uh-huh. And this is, it's one way where sort of the issue has become quite polarized. And it's in risk of, space colonization has become at risk of becoming a right-wing issue uh, because the left has environmentalism and if you put them in opposition, everything just gets sliced down the middle. And that, I don't think that will be good for anybody. And something I've been trying to convince people of is that there is no conflict and, in fact, there is sort of a mutual synergy in the fact that at some point in the future, we will be able to move human activity off the Earth and sort of break the conflict between human need and the, um, the condition of the Earth's biosphere. So either in sort of the colonizing Mars model or the O'Neill um, cylinder model, either way, and that this would be ultimately good for the environment. But, I mean, as you said yourself, we're quite a far way off doing this at scale. Uh, but so for the time being we might need but we do need to have some environmental considerations we need to sort of think about carbon dioxide emission we need to think about um, uh, other impacts on the planet but we should do so instead of in sort of this very kind of negative sort of degrowth deceleration sort of in some cases like deliberate population decline ideology, we need to sort of do it in the point of view that we just need to build a bridge from where we are now to this future where we can decouple from the biosphere. So instead of thinking of environmentalism as something that's going to need us to wind down sort of Western civilization and get rid of capitalism and all these things and just sort of become primitive again, we can think of it as this is just something we need to get through this century, maybe and then we can be out among the stars if we are working on that in the meantime. So, and both things require, uh, I think, sort of high degree of social and state capacity that we need to be able to sort of, going back to the original thing, sort of determine our values through discussion and then pursue them rationally. And the ability of a society to do this is needed both for um, transitioning away from fossil fuels and carbon emission and for settling space. So I, I don't think, I think the conflict is false and I think it's damaging and I want to sort of work to kind of minimize it. Uh, I, I, I think it's false too, but these things tend to gain traction way out of proportion to what they should be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's what one has to be on the guard for and has to speak out against, in my opinion. Um, but um, I, people who want to push these agendas, they, they don't let up, as you know. 
And so, mm. um, but but I I think it's phony, and uh, I I would hate to see the potential of a of a space economy and what that might mean for millions of people everywhere curtailed mm. because of uh, crazy ideologies and uh, and opinions that that just don't seem to hold a lot of water when you really look at them even objectively. Mm, yes. So, they come together on these things to solve problems. Yes. Peter, it's been great talking to you. Tell people how they can get your uh, your blog post. Uh, you just search on, on the search engine for Planetocracy. So Planetocracy. And, um, or find me on, on Twitter slash X um, under the handle Peter R. Haig. Um, and I post quite frequently there, and that'll link to my to my blog as well. Okay. Uh, we do follow it on the space show, and um, we will look forward to uh, some more of your posts, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again down the road. Uh, you have a lot to say, and it's very interesting and often really thought-provoking, so keep it up, and uh, we're grateful that you're willing to share your time with us here on the space show. Well, thank you. It's been nice talking to you. Okay. Have a great year, by the way. And since we haven't spoken yet for the new year. Um, and I'll talk to you soon for sure. Thank you, Peter. Okay, then. Bye-bye. Um, listeners, that's it with Peter, and uh, we thank him for giving us our time. It's evening in the U.K., so we appreciate him being with us on Sunday evening, that, his time. Um, we have um, lots of uh, interesting programming coming up this week. We did change... The Sunday show. So the Sunday show on February 4th is now going to be open lines. So um, I've changed it uh, on all the newsletters. So if you saw an earlier version of the newsletters and it showed our two guests on from Aerospace Corp, they got called out of town. Out of town. So uh, we're going to do open lines and trade the date with them probably to February 18th or something like that. So um, we hope you will listen and participate in our upcoming weekly space show program. Remember, we are a, a non-profit, 501c3. We do need your support, and uh, we hope that you can help us out with your tax-deductible contribution. Use the um, uh, uh, PayPal link in the upper right corner of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. If you have any questions about supporting us, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And um, back again Tuesday night. Uh, that'll be our next live space show program. And our guest again is Carlos Decchia. I think that's how you pronounce his name. On this new big space center being built near NASA Ames, which is in conjunction with UC Cal Berkeley. Uh, and also we'll take a look at the Korean space program. South Korea, and North Korea. So once again, everybody have a great rest of the weekend. There's still a little bit of it left, so enjoy it. Keep it safe. Always, always, always keep looking up. I hope you got to see the first full moon of the year a few days ago. It was really bright and shiny. And guess that, Guess what time it was when I saw it bright and shiny in the sky. 6.32 a.m. as I was walking Pepper in the area. And there it was in the west, over the mountains to the west of me.
uh, in all its daytime lunar splendor. So it's hard to see things in the night sky because of the bright lights of uh, Sin City, of the Las Vegas Strip. But wow, seeing it over the mountains in the morning against a blue sky, that was probably better than seeing it at night. So I hope you got a glimpse of our first full moon for 2024. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, goodbye from Peter in the UK. Thank you all the callers who called in and the emailers. And goodbye from David and the Space Show.